Thank you, Hannah and Mitch, for reading our scripture this morning. Thank you for First Baptist Waco for allowing our students to come and provide leadership in our worship service. We're glad to be here. Our pastor this morning is with his family at Walt Disney World, suffering for Jesus. (laughs) I'm thankful to him for the opportunity to preach in his absence. Let's pray. Almighty and loving God, it is good to be in your presence this morning. We're thankful for your sustaining love that's brought us to this point. And now we humbly ask that you would guide us as we turn to your word, that you would speak to us as we consider its truth in our lives, and that you would empower us, Lord, to become the people whom you have called us to be. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. They say that our lives are determined. Determined by decisions that we make at critical junctures in our lives. Do you think that's true? I imagine if we if we asked some of our more seasoned members of our congregation, my my parents just retired, both of them, and they have told us numerous times they're not elderly, they're seasoned. Uh, I'm sure if we asked some of you that you could point to key decisions in your life that you've made that have shaped the entire trajectory of your life. Decisions about where to work, what to study, decisions about how you would handle adversity, decisions about whether to forgive or to hold on to anger, decisions that had impacted the entire trajectory of your life. I was at one of those critical junctures myself about a year and a half ago. It's when I decided that I would marry my wife, Erin. Now, I was really excited about it, but honest, I was, I was pretty nervous, too. You know, I was about to propose, and, and, and proposals these days seem to be a big deal. I mean, guys go through these elaborate rituals to, to give a woman a ring. I don't quite understand it, but I figured I might as well go along with it. I talked with her, her, her father and her mother, her brother and her sister-in-law, trying to figure out what I was going to do. And after a couple of weeks, I made a plan. I decided at first I would just lie to her. And I told Erin uh, that I was going to be up in the Metroplex. She was living in Dallas. I told her I was up at a conference at a church in Arlington on a Friday. And, uh, well, since I'm there, I might as well meet you for dinner. This was one year after we'd started dating. Really, I was going up to Dallas that day to, to go to the jeweler. I had had, a, had them you know, kind of custom do a ring, and I was going to pick it up about 3 o'clock that afternoon, and I got there, picked it up about 3.15, and had a couple hours to wait. That was horrible. Um, <laughs> I, I got really nervous, you know, and, and when I do what I do when I get nervous, I make plans, so I planned out everything that I would say to her when we went to dinner that night, and about 5.30, you got off work, 
and I went and picked you up. We went to Gloria's there in Uptown, where we had had our first date. Um, and I said everything I'd planned in the first 10 minutes of our conversation. Uh, <laughs> the longest meal of my life. Uh, and, then, and then she wanted to go walk around. So we walked around Uptown for about 10 or 15 minutes. It seemed like an eternity. And then we went back to her apartment. And I began to execute my plan. I gave her uh, an album that I'd, I'd spent many hours making. And, and then it was go time. So... I, uh, I got down on one knee, I pulled out the ring, and I asked Aaron to marry me. The only problem was I was so nervous, I put the ring on her middle finger. <laughs> I mean, you know, imagine that, you know? And uh, she, she was laughing. I thought she was laughing in delight. Uh, it turned out she was... <laughs> I think laughing partially at me. She was very kind about it. I was just grateful she said yes. And then she she very gently uh, reminded me which finger was which and asked her if I would move it from her middle finger to her to her ring finger. And I I did it. I apologized. You know, I I told her that you know I was nervous. This was the first time I'd done anything like this, and uh, you know, not normally like this. Uh, What I learned was that this was not Aaron's first time to be proposed to. Uh, Aaron was proposed to twice as a student at Hardin-Simmons University, um, once on a park bench outside, out front, in front of the dorm, and the other at Taco Bueno. <laughs> uh, guys, I don't ever think Taco Bueno uh, is a good idea. Both times, Aaron told me, you know, these were complete surprises. I mean, they barely were in a relationship, like two, three weeks, and these guys, I think, just went overboard. uh, But both of the guys said something to the effect of, Aaron, God told me that you and I are supposed to be married. Both times, my wife looked those men in the eye and very politely but firmly told them, well, God has not told me that, <laughs> and uh, I don't think I can, I can accept right now. I think she went home, told all her friends and family, and I think everybody pretty much affirmed her decisions. You know, we laugh about things like this, but this scenario plays itself out just about every day. We play the God card all the time. If you tell people that God told you something, that gives extra authority or weight to what you're saying. I think, if we're honest, we do this too sometimes. But if we have any sense of self-awareness at all, we may wonder if we are really hearing God's voice or if it's just another voice in our head. I was talking to a friend, a good friend, earlier this year, and he asked the question, how do I know if God is speaking to me or if I'm just hearing voices inside of my head? I think that's a vital question that we have to ask, especially when we're at these critical junctures in our life. In fact, that's the very question that went through my mind as I was preparing for our sermon this morning, as I read our texts, 
in Acts chapter 11. Acts 11 describes one of the most critical junctures in the history of the church. Up to this point, if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, you were Jewish, or at least you acted like a good Jew. You were circumcised. You followed the Jewish dietary laws. You planned your life around Jewish observances. But Peter, who was one of the leaders in the early church, had an experience where he saw God send his Holy Spirit on the Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish faith. This was a groundbreaking experience. This was huge. And when the church leaders back in Jerusalem heard about this, they understandably felt threatened. They summoned Peter, brought him back to Jerusalem, and they questioned him about his experience. This would be like, like the leaders of the Baptist Convention up in Dallas calling Matt Snowden and asking him what on earth is going on in Waco, Texas. And you know, what's interesting to me, if you look at our text this morning, Peter doesn't get defensive He doesn't spend time defending himself. He simply explains how he saw God at work. He had a vision about clean and unclean animals. At the same time, a man named Cornelius, a Gentile, had a vision. And Cornelius was told in his vision that a man named Peter would come and explain the vision to him. So Cornelius sent for Peter. Peter joined Cornelius in his household. And when Peter arrived, Peter saw the Holy Spirit come down upon Cornelius and his family. And that was that. And what follows in today's text is what confounds me. The leaders of the early church believed Peter. And so began the biggest turning point in our church's history. Now, maybe I'm a cynic, but if I had been one of those leaders in the early church, I'd have been a bit skeptical about what was going on. I'd have said, come on, Peter, we need some more proof. One person doesn't just come and claim that they have a vision, and that changes the entire course of the church. This this doesn't add up. But that's not what the church leaders do. What changed their mind? The testimony of the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit changed their minds. But how? How did they know that it was the Holy Spirit leading them? And for that matter, how can any one of us know when the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. You know, as I've, I've read and reread this text, I've noticed three hints that I think may have helped the early church leaders know that the Holy Spirit was indeed at work. Now, I know that it is impossible to nail down the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and goes where it wills, 
it says in the Gospel of John. But I think we can say this. There are discernible patterns for the way that the Spirit works throughout the New Testament. And these patterns each manifest themselves in this morning's text. And I believe that these three patterns can help us discern whether or not those voices in our head are from God or if it's just something we ate for dinner last night. The first pattern that the Holy Spirit might be at work is this. The Holy Spirit always points people to Jesus Christ. If you've got your Bible open, look at verse 16, Acts eleven sixteen. Peter recalls Jesus saying, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Something prompts Peter to remember Jesus. And when he remembers that, he realizes that this is exactly what he is experiencing right then, that this pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Cornelius and his entire household was exactly what Jesus had spoken about. The Holy Spirit was pointing Peter to Jesus. Now, I think we can all agree, if we serve a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, that the Holy Spirit is never going to call us to do something outside of the character of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, then we have to be familiar with the stories about the life and the teachings of Jesus. If we want to be able to understand the Holy Spirit, we must know the stories of Scripture. I mean, honestly, it's hard to understand the Holy Spirit if we're not reading and reliving the stories of Scripture on a regular basis. Now, we can twist Scripture to say whatever we want it to say. I mean, we've seen that in our history books. We've seen it on the news. We've seen it here in Waco, Texas. Leaders who will cite Scripture to prop up authoritarian governments. Husbands who will twist these obscure texts to justify abuse. Those men who stand on a box outside of Waco Hall preaching hatred while carrying a Bible in the other hand. If we serve a triune God, the Holy Spirit is never going to lead us to do anything that will dehumanize another person. Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon put it well when they said, whatever we say about the Holy Spirit must be tested by and congruent with the life, death, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for Peter, on that fateful day 2,000 years ago, what he experienced, it was. Another pattern that we see of the Holy Spirit in Scripture is that the Holy Spirit speaks in an instant, but reveals its truth over a period of time. I mean, think about Saul's conversion on the Damascus Road. Saul had this vision in an instant, a vision of Christ. Or think of today's text 
here this morning. Peter had a vision of these four-footed animals. He saw this vision in an instant. But in both cases, it takes a period of time for them to understand the Spirit's teaching. Saul had to wait several days before a conversation with Ananias cleared up and helped him interpret his Damascus Road experience. In today's text, it took several days for Peter to understand his vision too. If you, if you flip back to chapter 10, you'll read that Peter initially thought this vision was about food, what to eat and what not to eat, what was pure and what was impure. It's only several days later when Peter meets with Cornelius and his family that he realizes that his vision was not about food. It was about people. This is a pattern that we see all throughout Scripture, that the Holy Spirit's revelation is confirmed over a period of time. Now, that's why I get nervous when I talk to people who make rash decisions in these critical junctures of their lives. You know, I hear about students who read the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler, and they wonder if the Holy Spirit is calling them to sell everything they have and drop out of school. Maybe. Or maybe not. Maybe the Holy Spirit is calling them to get to know their neighbors in their own community, to come work in something like agape meal that we'll do on Tuesday night in our fellowship hall. Or maybe God is calling them to change their majors and to work for systemic change in our culture. Or maybe God is calling them to alter their lifestyle. Time will tell. Throughout the Bible, we see Christ followers gaining a deeper understanding of the Holy Spirit's calling over a period of time. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to wait for a full confirmation from God about a decision. We may be waiting forever. You know, we're called to act on faith. But it does mean if you're not sure about something... Give it a week or two of prayer. Or maybe give it a month or two of prayer. And Peter, um, Paul, the apostle Saul, Paul, after he was called by God, went to Arabia for three years. Or Jesus, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, led Jesus Christ into the wilderness for 40 days as he prepared for his ministry. If the Spirit is going to take time for people like Saul and Jesus, then it's okay for us to take some time to try to discern the Spirit's teaching because that's how the Holy Spirit works. Throughout Scripture, we see this pattern. The Holy Spirit's revelation is confirmed over a period of time. Finally, I think there's one more hint, pattern, of how the Holy Spirit works in our lives, in our text today. If the Holy Spirit is working, if the Spirit really is in it, the Spirit will speak to multiple people, a group of believers, the church. 
That's the only way that I can make sense of what happens in the Jerusalem church in today's reading when the leaders make this 180-degree shift in believing Peter. The Spirit led them collectively to that conclusion. Simply put, if the Holy Spirit really is in something, the Spirit will make that clear to more than one person. When two or three are gathered in my name, I am with them, Jesus said. I think one of the best ways to discern the Spirit's leadership in our lives is to get a group of trusted friends, believers together, and talk about your, your decision, what you sense the Spirit leading. And not just talk about it, pray about it. The Quakers developed a model for this that churches still use today. They called them discernment groups, where somebody with a question, a leading from the Spirit, would come and a group would form around them, and they would present the question, and the group would prayerfully listen and asking thoughtful questions, not to try to answer for them, but to point that person to God. Questions like, should I take this job? Should I marry this person? How do I respond to my family if they think so differently than I do? Groups like this are really a beautiful thing. Quite helpful. Beware of the person who has a special insight from the Holy Spirit that nobody else has. If the Spirit is working in a situation the Spirit will speak to other believers involved. I'm glad my wife and her closest friends had enough sense to understand that. If not, she may have gotten married at Taco Bueno, (laughs) and I'd still be a single man. In in 1 John chapter 4, Jesus says, do not, or, or the Scripture says, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. The Holy Spirit's activity in Acts chapter 11 and throughout the New Testament provides three important ways that we can test those spirits to see if they are truly from God. Do they point us to Jesus Christ? Are they confirmed over a period of time? And are they confirmed in a sense of Christian community? The church. If so, perhaps the Holy Spirit really is in it. The message of the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit really is involved in our lives. Our God is not a God of the deists, the watchmaker who who builds a watch and winds it up and then sets it aside and watches it tick from a distance. No, the witness of Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in our daily lives. The Holy Spirit is working behind the scenes, prompting us, pointing us, and directing us to God's truth. We are never alone. Now, perhaps there is some truth to this idea that decisions we make at critical junctures affect the trajectory of our entire lives. But on the other hand, the Bible points us to an even 
deeper truth. I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus said. You are not alone. I will ask the Father, and he will give you an advocate, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. We are not alone. The Father sends the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, and to point us to the truth. May God give us the grace to follow his Spirit today. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are indeed grateful that we are not alone that you have not abandoned us, that you have sent us your Holy Spirit to guide us and point us and to lead us to your truth in our lives. God, we pray that you would give us the courage to recognize your Spirit's voice and the strength to follow its leadership. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We've come now to the point in our service uh, where you have an opportunity for decision. If God has been working in your life and you have a decision you'd like to make public, maybe you feel led to join our church, or maybe you feel led to, to share with our congregation how God is working in your life, or maybe you just like prayer. If God is working in your life, in just a minute, we will stand and sing, and we'd invite you to come forward. Sam, you'll lead us.